Hello, and welcome to St. Sinners and Salvageable, a look inside America's electoral system. I'm your host, Ben Ginsberg, and each week through the end of the 2022 election season, we'll examine the issues surrounding the casting, counting, and certification of this year's voting. I've spent four decades representing Republican candidates and committees, and this is my guided tour through the election system and the issues which make this cycle so contentious and scrutinized. Today, we'll examine the precipitous and worrisome drop in the public's faith in elections and offer some solutions on how to get it back. According to a slew of recent polls, it is as indisputable as it is regrettable that public faith in elections has declined, while concerns for the future of our republic's democracy have grown. A recent CNN poll found that in January 2021, shortly after the attack on the U.S. Capitol, 59% of Americans said they had at least some confidence the U.S. elections reflected the will of the people. That included 36% who were very confident that elections were representative of the public's wishes. But in July 2022, only a year and a half later, poll found that but 42% have some confidence and just 16% are very confident in our election. Polling also suggests that this concern is spread across the ideological spectrum and that Republicans and Democrats see the driving factors behind this completely differently. Democrats worry that who should be able to vote can't, while Republicans cite voter fraud and tampering, uh, despite a dearth of evidence to support that. Today, we'll examine this with two experts who bring different perspectives to the conversation. Bob Bauer uh, is now a professor of practice at NYU Law School and my co-chair on the Election Officials Legal Defense Network. He has represented many a Democratic Party organization and candidate on all levels, including uh, being a special counsel to Joe Biden's uh, 2020 campaign and working in both Barack Obama campaign, and he also served as White House counsel in the Obama administration. Bill Gates is a Republican serving his second term as a supervisor in Maricopa County, Arizona, where the board's duties include putting on elections in Arizona's largest county and the country's fourth largest. Before that, Bill practiced law in Phoenix for 25 years and is a lifelong Republican whose pro bono activities uh, back in his private practice days included assisting with the Republican election day operation. A Republican whose pro bono activity back in those days included assisting with Republican election day operation. Welcome, Bob and Bill. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, you, I know, have both looked at this issue closely. So I want to start with your thoughts on what are the root causes for this downturn in public confidence in election. Bill, as a Republican official who does have responsibility for putting on elections in one of political battlegrounds, what do you see as the root cause? So unfortunately, you know, I don't think that this is something that has just popped up from out of nowhere. Uh, generally, we've, we know this for decades, there's been growing distrust in institutions. So that's definitely something that, that uh, you know, is part of this. And these populist trends really are internationally, we're, we're seeing this internationally. So that's certainly kind of under the surface. And I would say that certainly um, elected officials 
definitely since the, the election of Donald Trump in 2016, have learned to play off of this populist bent that's out there and see what resonates. And unfortunately, this kind of general distrust that exists out there translated very well to elections, we've found. And it's really very easy to exploit for people who are trying to take advantage of this, both to uh, obtain political power and to make money off of it. And Bob, your perspective as a lawyer uh, who, who does represent Democratic candidates and committees. I don't disagree with Bill's analysis at all. I agree that there is an underlying distrust here in a period of sharp political polarization that has been sadly exacerbated by the behavior of people in public life, uh, elected and other officials, who, as Bill points out, have played upon it to their own advantage. And so at this particular time, I think it's become particularly serious because we need to identify trusted voices outside the polarized channels of political communication that can help restore that trust, help bolster confidence in elections and answer questions and put conspiracy theories to rest. And that has proven very difficult. That is to say, it's very difficult to identify those breakthrough voices that can overcome uh, the chaos of polarization and this very focused distrust of electoral institutions that politicians are promoting. Let's explore a little bit that idea of trusted voices, because I think it is very important in discussing this issue. Um, Bill, you, you see this on a really granular level and certainly did in the aftermath of the 2020 election, where you got um, a lot of fan mail, shall we say, uh, from constituents. One way to put it. Uh, and, and, and you do deal with the doubts on almost a daily basis. Who, who could be the trusted voices in this? And who is the audience that really needs to be reached? Well, certainly there are people on all sides of the political spectrum that need to hear this message. But as a Republican, I'm sort of focused on the Republican side of the aisle. And to me, uh, Republicans need to hear from other Republicans. They need to hear from elected Republicans or former elected Republicans who tell them you can still trust the system. And that's been one of my challenges. My colleagues and I on the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and Stephen Richer, our uh, recorder, have been few of the Republican voices. Obviously, Liz, Liz Cheney would be another one, and yours, Ben, is, is another voice who have spoken to the fact that elections still work, that they can trust in the system. But generally, Republican elected officials have either openly criticized the 2020 election or remained silent when they knew that other Republicans were lying about what happened. So that, that would be number one. But additionally, I think there are business leaders in the community who could speak out. There are faith leaders who could speak out as well. Trusted voices, if they would raise, raise them, that would help. But I think Bob and Ben, you both know, people are terrified to get into the middle of this debate if they're not in it already. And so most good people, they're good people, but they just say, you know what? I don't want any part of that. And so the only voices we're hearing are those screaming the lies, unfortunately. And Bob, I've heard you worry that Democrats um, could join Republicans in the poll reflexive in uh, doubting elections. Um, who do you believe the trusted voices are? 
I've certainly worried because the question I think you heard me recently discussed is what how will Democrats respond if Donald Trump runs for re-election and wins a close election? What will the outcome then be of Democrats' judgments about the efficacy of the electoral process, especially after these many years of election denialism and the battle over voting rules in the state and the concerted attack, as Democrats see it, on access to the polls? And I have worried that in those circumstances, uh, that could bring about a democratic revolt against the system, if you will, a revolt, I mean, in a, in a peaceful sense, but nonetheless, a very strong and skeptical reaction to the outcome of an election in 2024. I agree with Bill, again, about the complexity of inviting community leadership, nonpartisan community leadership, business, faith, and other communities into the conversation. I agree that they're very concerned about being drawn into a partisan political debate and facing retribution and loss of customer base and threats uh, from partisans who are unhappy with their intervention. Part of what needs to happen is to persuade them that there is a fundamental difference between taking the position of any one political party on what I call voting policy issues, whether we have automatic voter registration or the number of weeks of early voting or the virtues of various ways that we try to facilitate voter access to the polls. On the one hand, that's a set of policy questions that do divide the party, but fundamental defense of electoral institutions and norms on the other, which shouldn't divide the parties. And the problem is that they view any intervention in the latter as necessarily to be confused with an intervention of the former. And so, say, a Republican business person will worry that they're going to be accused of siding with the Democrats in what, for want of a better term, I'll call the voting wars. And I think a real major effort has to be made to persuade them that that doesn't have to be the case and their voices are, are critically needed. Do each of you agree with the construct that Republicans see fraud and Democrats see suppression and much of the get out the vote messaging of the parties and indeed the support groups in the nonprofit community are geared up around either the fraud or the suppression issue and how that um, feeds into the, the overall lack of confidence. Bob, do you buy that construct? In a very, I mean, as a very Overall, I'd say sort of basic construct. I think it's absolutely true. Republicans are oftentimes, and I'm obviously not speaking to all Republicans anymore that I can speak on the other side to all Democrats, but they tend to obsess. And I've seen that even in the Trump, Trump pre-Trump period, they seem to obsess about security lapses. Um, and on the Democratic side, I think there's a view that we should do every, we can, everything we can to support voters in participating in our electoral process and facilitate where we can, consistent with sound security practices in the electoral process. I'm going to say something that may sound partisan. I don't mean it as partisan, but this anti-fraud movement, I'm just going to say this as a Democrat, but I'm also going to say something, Ben, you heard me say when we were co-chairs of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, this anti-fraud argument has traveled an awful long way on very, very little evidence. And over time, it has had a really corrosive effect on the debate. So even in the pre-Trump era, it was way overstated. And I think it was a glide path in some respects to where we are today. And that's deeply, deeply unfortunate. So I don't think we can lay off the entire blame for where we are on the Trump period as bad as it has become during this period of time. Um, fair enough. And Bill, you um, 
as a Maricopa County supervisor, had the pleasure of the Cyber Ninja audit, uh, looking at your election, all predicated on the notion that there was fraud. And then a really um, sort of contentious legislative session where certainly the fraud versus suppression uh, debate played out. You find it is sort of a bumper sticker or a valid way to look at the issue? Uh, no, I mean, I would agree with Bob. I think it's generally uh, does reflect kind of how the two uh, parties look at this issue differently. Um, I guess on what, what Bob said, I mean, I, I think as far as Republicans are concerned, it is interesting, you know, being a Republican uh, ever since I could register to vote at 18 years of age, this, this fraud narrative has been a part of, I guess, our um, history or the, um, uh, you know, story of the party going back to 1960, right, with the, uh, with the Kennedy election. But I would push back a little bit on Bob saying that, Ben, you and I and the many other uh, Republican lawyers who worked on this issue over the years, we handled it very professionally, and we never, ever pursued it in the fashion that it's been pursued to the point where, as you pointed out, my colleagues and I were dealing with the Cyber Ninja audit for most of last year, and currently we're still in litigation right now, actually with uh, Carrie Lake and Mark Fincham, our gubernatorial and secretary of state nominees, over whether or not there, it's even constitutional for us to use voting machines. Uh, so the, the battle continues. The case was dismissed by a district court judge here in Phoenix. We filed for Rule 11 sanctions, but just yesterday, uh, Carrie Lake uh, has appealed this decision. So, you know, this continues on, and uh, certainly there is nonetheless a, there is a, it's the, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus perspective uh, when it comes to re Republicans and Democrats and voting and, and voting fraud and voting access issues. I absolutely uh, would not have put Bill Gates or you into that column, but you recall, Ben, uh, many years ago, you brought me to a Republican lawyers confab. I think it was in Chicago. I think it was in 2012. I did, and you survived. Pardon me? You survived. I did survive. I did survive, and I wasn't even armed. All went well. But at that time, there were smart lawyers in the room who just evinced this deep, deep, utterly unsubstantiated suspicion about the lack of controls at the polls and that there was really danger of security lapses. These were not uh, people that I thought were otherwise extreme in their views or irresponsible in their conduct. But I definitely want to distinguish what I heard from them, from my experience working with you and from my experience with uh, the outlook that Bill Gates has evinced in his work. Uh, again, uh, this is a strain in both parties, both in the Democratic Party commitment to access, certainly a very pronounced view. And in the Republican Party, I would distinguish election denialism from an overall preoccupation with security measures and the fear of fraud. But I don't want to confuse all Republicans. I, all Republicans who are worried about security are certainly not in the election denial camp. <laughs> we, we appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make sure Bill didn't think I was attacking all the Republicans. Not, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> we understand. So one of the other phenomenons that feeds into this lack of confidence is the role of disinformation in our election. Um, and there's certainly been a huge increase in what we all disinformation. Um, it takes different forms. 
news that Russia spent a vast sum on election efforts that's come out in the past week uh, is certainly one example. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community found that some of that money was aimed at our election. Uh, there are certainly Republican candidates uh, and parties who uh, make the fraud allegations you both referred to without any um, any real any real proof. And I think we've all seen that some candidates in campaigns will engage in efforts to discredit their opponents by whatever means necessary these days uh, and have tools that through social media that haven't been present. So my question with that um, sort of leading windup is how big is this problem of disinformation when we talk about um, uh, public confidence? How does it manifest itself and what you see on a regular basis, Bill, as a uh, as a Maricopa Super Bowl. So I would say before 2020, you had some of that out there, but now it has absolutely blossomed. So we just went through our primary election here in 20, August of 2022, and there are so many different strains of disinformation. They both pull they they both claw back to 2020 because. Here in Maricopa County, as in other jurisdictions, we have a live stream camera on our ballot tabulation center 24-7. So literally, people will just sit here and watch this camera, see someone walk in the room, do a screenshot of it, and then send out a tweet. You've got groups like Gateway Pundit and others. They send it out with the most ridiculous stories. Uh, that are then viewed by hundreds of thousands of people. And it and it goes from there even into the really minutia, like for example, the pens that should be used on our ballots. I think a lot of people know about the Sharpie gate experience we had in 2020, where there were allegations about the type of pens that we were being used were, were causing the vote totals to be thrown off. And just in the primary election in August, we were telling voters, hey, we're gonna put a specific type of pen in uh, for you to use because it's less likely to smudge the ballots. We were then attacked with a lot of misinformation saying, no, they want you to, to use those pens. It's part of their whole conspiracy. And instead, you should steal those pens and replace it with ballpoint pens. And then finally, great amount of misinformation in the August election about how long it should take to count the votes. Here in Arizona, we have a hybrid system upwards of 80% of our votes are uh, by mail. So as a result, it takes us days to complete the counting. That isn't, a, that isn't Ill illustrative of any fraud that's going on, but it's the complicated system where you have signature verification, et cetera. Well, when Carrie Lake was not declared the winner by the AP and CNN on election night, all of a sudden there was some something nefarious going on and we were sitting here you know manipulating votes and florida counts their votes in 24 hours or less why isn't maricopa county doing that that is just a very small sample of the type of misinformation that is very corrosive to faith in our democratic system and bob what are you seeing from the democratic perspective I see the same misinformation, you know, in the work that you and I do, Ben, uh, we've been actively worried about that and the effect it has on election officials uh, whose conduct is being misportrayed across the board uh, in certain jurisdictions in certain instances, but very dangerously. 
whose processes are being misrepresented badly. I worry about the self-discipline of media organizations and not being run down those rabbit holes. Imagine election night in 2022, or again, an election night in 2024, we just need to have a media that rather than chase the allegation, does some serious backup reporting before in effect becoming the unwitting platform for repeating the misinformation. We all know, and Ben, you and I have been in the political world, uh, no one would argue that we've been angels in defense of our clients' interests. We've been like lawyers representing them vigorously. But we all know that somebody who announces that they're going to make a sensational charge and take a microphone to level it, particularly, for example, if votes haven't been fully counted yet, everybody's waiting for the results, the press will flock to that and the, there will be attention paid to material that is being disseminated that is false and misleading and deliberately so. And I, I think one of our tasks is to develop new protocols for responsible news organizations to not be the unwitting accomplices in purveying that information to the public. So let's drill down a little bit more on the role of the media. And um, that has to do with the information that, that they're fed. Um, the reason I raised the fraud and suppression uh, set up a moment ago was that um, in the lead up to elections, groups on both sides are trying to plant stories with media about fraud and suppression taking place. Uh, and then uh, the media is supposed to, on election day, not pay attention to eruptions in polling places. Um, how do we get around that little? seeming problem. Bill, you must have to deal with this. Yeah. So, you know, the one thing, and I, I, I probably should have mentioned this in my answer to your last question, is that I have really been, and again, as a Republican, I'll admit it, uh, been, we, we tend to be a little uh, protective uh, when it comes to dealing with the media. Uh, there is a, there is a perception as, as a Republicans that perhaps there is a media bias against us. And throughout the, the, the whole 2020 election, Cyber Ninja audit, uh, I have been really had a very much an open door with the media. And I think our local media in particular has done a, an excellent job of covering what's going on, uh, separating uh, truth from fiction as it relates to the elections. Probably much of the issues that we're having now here in Maricopa County anyway, is from non-traditional uh, media, and I'll use that term, you know, very, very lightly, but, you know, the, the gateway pundits of the world, people that are just a guy with 3 million followers on Twitter, when they capture something like this, you know, that would fall into that narrative that you mentioned, this sort of dichotomy, they send it out, they get one person out there uh, somewhere in Maricopa County who tweets about something, I guess it would be an example of fraud, ballot harvesting, something like that on our end. And maybe on the Democratic side, it might be, uh, you know, uh, some gentleman showing up at a polling place with AR-15s or something like that, right? Which, of course, would be very, very concerning. But something like that that's not been verified and then is then picked up and amplified by someone with millions of Twitter followers that is exceedingly difficult. And I got to tell you, we're spending a lot of time here trying to figure out how do you deal with that? It's one thing when you've got three or four or five reporters to wrangle, but what do you deal with a guy who's got a platform of 5 million voters or 5 million followers on Twitter and they literally don't have a name? 
They do not have a human's name. They have some, you know, pseudonym, and we don't even know where they're located. So these challenges are, to use that overused to, to word these days, unprecedented. How would you how would you deal with the media in this situation? What do you want them to do, and how do you uh, how do you get them to do it? Certainly. Well, let me just say one thing preliminarily, which is. And again, I'm trying to say this without uh, without lapsing at anything partisan because that's not my intent. But the one fundamental difference between, as you say, you know, Democrats who are going to the press with their stories and Republicans going to the press with their stories is this, which is whether we agree with their policy judgments or not, Democrats are correctly identifying a movement across the country to elect people uh, to positions of responsibility in the electoral infrastructure who don't believe in elections, and a concerted effort to restrict in various ways the voting rules by, for example, seeking to declare mail balloting unconstitutional or by denying voters the cure of ballots in certain circumstances where innocent mistakes are made and normally election officials can work with the voters to fix them. So I don't wanna entirely equate the democratic concern with those practices with what I'll say is the completely fabricated set of claims about the uh, electoral process and its security and the sorts of issues that Bill just raised uh, that we see in the disinformation circuit. The second thing I wanna say is on the question of what I'd like to see the media do, what I hope it can be done, and there has been some very strong reporting on this topic to be sure, nationally as well as locally, is I would like them, particularly as elections approach and on election day and election night especially, I would like them, rather than rush and cover the point of conflict, to go to trusted sources themselves so that they can, when they report these allegations, report a fact-based, fully contextualized, fully supported answer to those charges. Uh, there are people out there uh, who are nonpartisan, who can provide expert uh, uh, guidance who can deny uh, that a process works the way it's represented. There are reporters who can go out into the field before something goes on the air and deny that there are widespread disruptions in polling places, the sort of story that of course can discourage voters from even participating in the election. So I'm reminded of that expression, what is it, um, uh, check, wise, check twice, cut once which is extra, extra care and fidelity to the truth and, and to care and reporting when actually going on the air and utilizing the airtime to help push back against what they know to be, for example, this uh, pseudonym, the, the hypothetical that Bill put out of the pseudonymous blogger who is saying something outlandish. It is certainly um, a difficult problem that I think everyone is grappling with. Um, Bill, can you describe in a little bit of detail the more of the efforts that you're doing to talk to the media to get them to to cover uh, elections with some proportionality? Yeah, so we have again, uh, we we are really when when we for example this pen issue that I mentioned to you earlier, we saw that one coming. So we took the time to sit down with the reporters. We know Arizona Republic. I mean, we have. Washington Post, New York Times, folks that are now covering our elections um, quite frequently. And we reach out to them and say, hey, we anticipate this is going to be the issue. 
let's be prepared for it. So that's one, that's kind of the longer game, right? Getting them ready in advance for exactly what Bob talked about. So that when these inputs come in on election day, they have context for them and they can use that context to put forward as much of the truth as is possible. But then also um, you have to do this rapid response. And that was not in Maricopa County's DNA historically. County government, we're sort of this, you know, not necessarily, not usually on the front pages, a little sleepier, important level of government, but not used to that kind of rapid response. And with everything that happened in 2020, both the election and also COVID, because we're the public health uh, authority for the region, we understood we needed to get a lot more lean forward. So an example of what we did was as the cyber ninjas would come out with their quote unquote uh, legislative hearings and present information about what they had found, we were live tweeting in response. So Doug Cotton, uh, I'm sorry, Ben Cotton, or um, uh, you know, they would they would make certain statements, and we were live tweeting, and people were surprised by that. But you know what? These reporters, they would take that. They saw us as a trusted source and they would get that information out. Now, fast forward to August 2022, and we were kind of back in the mode of election. We're running an election, right? That's our major focus. And we were certainly dealing with communications, but frankly, not in the lean forward type of approach we had during Cyber Ninja, because that was what we were doing. That was our entire focus. So now I think in November of 2022, you're going to see us bringing both of those up to a level that they need to be both. We're running the election, which everyone would agree is number one. That has to be our number one focus, but making rapid response communications a very high priority. We used to have one or two people doing comms on an election day, and now we literally have a room full of people doing communications. Very interesting. Um, I want to, in our in our last few minutes, talk about some other factors that could be contributing to a public lack of confidence in our election. And is this worth uh, some sort of reform efforts on? So I'm just going to go down a list here. Um, we have a very decentralized election system, over 10,000 jurisdictions in the country. Uh, with 10,000 jurisdictions, you are not going to get great consistency. Is this something that is a good reform, and is it at all practical to, to think it could be enacted? Bob? I couldn't really speak to the reform unless I knew what, what precise form the reform would take, but it is certainly a problem. I have real doubts that there's anything that could be done about it in the short term. So if I was to put together my list of reforms that I thought were achievable in the near or midterm, I wouldn't put that at the top as strong in principle as I thought it might be. Uh, I actually think that decentralization is a strength of our system. Uh, it's consistent with our federal system. And, and even though we may have questions of, about the trust that people have for local officials, there's far more, especially on our side of the aisle, distrust for Washington, DC. So I think the way to address this is is don't centralize it, remain decentralized, and remind people that it's their neighbors who are running the elections. Very interesting. Um, how about the notion of uh, election officials who run as partisan? So they are essentially partisan election officials uh, when they're on the ballot themselves, but then have to call balls and strikes on election. 
Bill, you want to take that one first since you are one? Yeah, yes, I do support partisan. Uh, uh, I, I do support election officials being partisan uh, elected officials as long as as we are hiring professionals to run the elections. Well, this is the one point which this is one point on which at this point in the program, I have a strong disagreement with Bill, as you know, Ben, from talking to me over the years. I think the commitment of these responsibilities to partisans who have political ambitions and party loyalties to respect is absolutely scandalous. The problem, of course, is that as part of if they're very partisan, not to speak of partisan and ambitious and looking to score well with their party and potentially set themselves up for future office. I can't imagine that they're going to appoint people who are responsible. Uh, now, some will. I understand that, and some have. But I don't understand why we're putting people who have a stake in the outcome of the election, a political stake in out of the election, in charge of that election. It breeds mistrust. And even if it's a small number over time who have disgraced themselves in that position of responsibility, that's too large a number. And as we head into this period of distrust of elections, I think it's a highly aggravating factor across the board. So I'm, I've never liked the system. And as you know, Ben, in the 2014 report from the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, we didn't say there should not be partisan election officials, but we definitely said there, be a, there should be a consistent move toward the professionalization of election administration and partisan electoral frameworks for the choice of election officials is inconsistent with that goal in my judgment. Do you want rebuttal time, Bill? Yeah, so the, the, the only thing I would say to that is, I, I, I certainly understand Bob's point, but I think that that suggests that people who are not partisan elected officials are uncorruptible. You could have someone who's not a partisan, a, a partisan could still be corrupted in other ways. So in the end, we're humans, we are not perfect, and there are lots of eyeballs on us. But Trust me, Bob's perspective, I have given Bob's perspective a lot more thought in the last couple of years, <laughs> but I still, I still stand by that we can get this done. And for the most part, we've been very successful in having partisan elected officials run elections uh, for decades. Uh, one other part about the credibility of elections is um, whether it is justified or not, there is an expectation of results on election night, uh, historically. And uh, because of a variety of laws, in some cases, prohibiting the processing of absentee ballots until election day, and in others, uh, allowing ballots cast by election day to be received a number of days after election day. Uh, in close elections, you're not going to know on election night. And that leads to or has led to some turmoil uh, in the land about that. Um, thoughts about, about that, both starting the processing of absentee ballots sooner and having election day as the deadline for the receipt of ballots. Bob, you want to take that one first? It would only be responsible in states where there's a high volume of mail balloting, frankly, in any states, to give, in one form or another, election officials the opportunity to begin to process the ballots before election day. I think I can think of one state in particular, I won't call out a particular state today, but one state in particular where it is clear that that's contributing 
uh, to this anxiety about whether the results were somehow monkeyed with between election night and thereafter. And the legislature refused to, again, allow uh, for an early vote count. I mean, just a deliberate act, a cynical act that, in my view, undermines the electoral process. The answer, given that in the near term, we are going to have, particularly in close elections, and in many important elections, the elections will be closed. The answer, and this is in broad brush terms because the execution on this general principle is not simple, is as much voter education as possible about what they can expect on election night, number one. Number two, and Bill's an authority on this and has done a phenomenal job in Maricopa, as even his comments on a few questions today have indicated, as much transparency in the electoral process as possible so that voters aren't wondering what's happening behind my back between the time I cast my ballot and the time the results were published. I think that is a, a second a critical factor here. Uh, so those two alone, education coupled with major transparency requirements, and again, it won't be easy to push through on this or to break through on this, I think are important given that I don't think that the problem that you're describing is gonna go away anytime soon. And by the way, last thing, I'm just going to, one final thing. We've got to get away from the idea that election night is primetime entertainment. And unfortunately, we do. There's one thing that drives me nuts, if I can use this particular moment for a little bit of self-therapy. And that is a picture of the two presidential candidates. And it'll say 53% Bauer and 47% Ginsburg, which understates what would happen if we ran against each other, Ben, I think significantly, the margin would be much higher. I would, I would agree with that probably. Yeah, absolutely. Really. And then you look underneath it, it says 1,117 votes. And the reporter says, well, of course, this is based on a small number. It's not only based on a small number, it's based on a meaningless number, but the graphic would suggest that all of a sudden the race is shaping up. That sort of practice has to end. Bill? So uh, this one, I know, again, Arizona's system, electoral system, uh, Maricopa County has be been beat up the last couple of years. So I'm going to I'm going to try and toot our horn here. Um, working with the legislature, we were able to get the date to begin processing ballots pushed back to the extent that in the August 22 primary election, we were caught up the, the first number that we reported at 8 p.m on Tuesday evening was of all of the mail-in ballots that we had received through, I believe the Saturday before the election, we were essentially caught up, which was significant. So I must give credit to the legislature for allowing us to do that. And then on the back end, I think it's very clear bright line rule in Arizona. We have to get your ballot by election day. And I'm frankly shocked that other states, you know, we get into our own myopic view of thing. I'm shocked that other states count votes that come in. I understand they're postmarked before, you know, on or before election day. But I think we've, we've got a good system there. So, I mean, the legislature has kind of given us everything that we asked for uh, on these, you know, on, on these accounts. And yet we still were beat up, but here's the thing, 120,000 people showed up on election day and dropped off their mail-in ballot, 
Okay, so that means the next, the day after election day on that Wednesday, we started the whole process, which includes signature verification and others. So again, I guess if we want to speed that speed it up. Say you know you won't accept drop off mail in ballots, but people obviously 120,000 people in Maricopa County like doing it that way in August. So there's limitations to these reforms, but we can continue to move that dial around and make it better, I think. And we can't give up on these important reforms. Very good, we have two minutes left. And so I wanna reserve that uh, for any uh, solutions that you have that we haven't gotten to, to increase uh, voters' confidence in election results. Um, Bill, what, what, what else would you do? Here's what I wish I could do, Ben. I wish I could grab everybody and say, come with me, come spend the afternoon at the ballot tabulation center. Let me walk you through this whole process. This is the issue, right? Is demystifying the election process. We're doing what we can on that. But again, we know people have so many things coming at them all the time, but the more information, the better, the more sunshine on this. And we're committed to it at Maricopa County. We're gonna keep doing it, even if people don't wanna listen to it. The Bob Bauer magic bullet is? Well, no magic bullet, but first of all, I really uh, am very struck and agree with Vi and agree with what Bill said about the importance of walking people through the process. It would be nice if, for example, uh, the networks would provide time for a demonstration by election officials in every state. You could literally, in a, in a viewer-friendly time slot, really walk people through. Who People who can't come to the election process or can't come to the election center but ought to know how election officials are going to be conducting the election. And the second thing is something I'm sure Bill would um, not object to this, and Ben, you and I have discussed it. We want this election system to work. We want errors to be eliminated, which is impossible. Errors will take place. As Bill said, we're all human, and we don't fund it adequately. We just don't provide election officials across the country. I know there may be jurisdictions where this isn't true, but generally speaking, uh, we won't commit as a democracy the kind of resources to the protection of our elections and to the administration of our elections that it seems to me as a democracy we are really obligated to do. And that strikes me uh, as also a major and ongoing problem, and I'd like to see that corrected. Thank you. Those are both excellent suggestions. Uh, Bob and Bill, thank you so much for coming on for this really interesting discussion. I think we could... Uh, go on for, for far more time than we have. So thanks to you both. And we'll be back next Tuesday with another St. Sinners and Salvageables podcast. I'm Ben Ginsberg. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work, or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.